From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Friday, May 19th. Utah's mountain lion hunting laws changed pretty dramatically at the beginning of the month. A new wildlife bill passed by Governor Spencer Cox now allows for an unlimited year-round cougar hunting season, despite a decline in mountain lion numbers in recent years. Previously, hunters were limited to two mountain lions per season, and the season typically lasted from November through May. Now, hunters are allowed to kill as many cougars as they want throughout the year. Plus, they're allowed to use traps, which were previously illegal. Darren DeBluis is the Game Mammals Coordinator for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Their concern was that, you know, we had too many mountain lions that are eating too many deer. We have seen a decline in mule deer numbers statewide. The biggest driving factors have been drought, followed by some heavy winters. And of course, this last winter was pretty impactful to deer. Chronic wasting disease could also be contributing to the decline in mule deer populations in the past decade. The fatal disease affects deer, elk, and moose and is especially prevalent in the Moab area. There was probably some agricultural concern, primarily sheep, cougars do kill sheep. There was some human safety concerns as well. We feel like we have more cougars than we have for a while, but we also have a whole lot more people with cameras on their houses ring doorbells and and all that. So they're catching them on cameras where, you know, they would have been there in the past, but people weren't weren't necessarily aware of it. You said we feel like there are more cougars than there have been in the past, but that's different than knowing. So it's more of just a perception or an optics thing, like they're more in urban areas right now? Every time someone catches one on a on a house camera, it it seems like it goes viral. It's kind of like you get a couple of shark attacks and then all of a sudden that's on everybody's mind, you know. But it's, it's still rare, real rare. But we don't have real good estimates of the total numbers. Talking to people, houndsmen that are, that are pursuing and, and hunting cougars, they, they feel like there were fewer where they were hunting. Daryl Meekum is a longtime hunter who lives in Green River. There are less mountain lions now on the book cliffs than I've ever seen in my life. I hunted a lot last winter and they, they're not there. Another major change in the rules is that hunters are no longer required to have a specific permit for mountain lions. Mountain lions can now be killed with a general Utah hunting license, whereas before, hunters would have needed to apply and pay for a specific cougar permit. Meekum is also the former chief deputy sheriff for Grand County. He says this permitting change opens up a loophole for people to hunt other big game under the pretense of hunting cougars. And you mentioned that you think there could be people who are getting this general license um, going out with the intention of hunting bears. But if someone stops them, they're going to say, you know, we're hunting mountain lions. Um, So that's something you've just heard anecdotally. I already know what's going on. I've had phone calls from people I know that have asked me about it. And I had one in particular. He's, He's out there now. They're hunting mountain lions, but they're not. They're hunting bears problem you have is this legislation and this bill pulled all the teeth from your law enforcement and DWR to do that and having been in law enforcement for 38 years myself I don't know how they're ever going to police it if someone gets them or they get caught with bear they'll just you know sorry my dog's trashed or move over to the bear track caught a bear I'm trying to catch him and I'll get him out of there but I'm lion hunting And there's no way you're going to be able to prove otherwise. It's going to be hard. You won't be able to do it in court. And the pressure of having dogs running bare all those months, all this time on the mountain is just not reasonable. It isn't. And 
when you get into groups that are running a lot of dogs on bears, you're going to have mortality. There are some ways that the DWR tries to prevent this. Bear hunting is almost always done with hounds. So at least in the book cliffs, the San Juans and the La Salles, if you're hunting with hounds, you need to have a bear permit, regardless of what you say you're hunting. They call it a dog closure, but that's only a rule from May 31st to November 2nd. You can hunt cougars, but you got to have a bear permit. They could be claim to be hunting lions and, and be actually pursuing bears. And that'd be something that our, one of our officers would have to make. It's still illegal if they don't have the proper permit. And obviously, if they harvested one, they wouldn't have a permit. So that, that's a pretty big deal, but it'd be up to our officers to prove that. Meekum has been hunting his whole life, but he rarely takes animals home. It's not called killing. It's called hunting for a reason. There's no holds barred on the mountain lions in Utah, and that breaks my heart. I'm sorry. I love and respect lions. I think they're one of the greatest animals we have, and they're being persecuted. For more information about changes to Utah's cougar hunting laws, you can check out today's show notes. Grand County schools are closed today and Monday to stop transmission of norovirus. As KZMU's Molly Marcello reports, the highly contagious stomach illness is causing disruptions for students and staff. The Grand County School District won't say just how many student or staff absences have been caused by norovirus this week, but they do report absences have, quote, markedly increased due to the virus. This has informed the district's decision to move to remote learning on Friday and Monday. That will allow time for the district's custodial staff to deep clean each school. Brittany Garf with the Southeast Utah Health Department says shutting the schools for a long weekend could help quell the outbreak. The incubation period is about 48 hours, so we're kind of giving two sets of those, uh, two sets of incubation periods to try and settle the virus down a little bit. It, It just gives people a little bit of time to try and get it out of their systems and maybe not have as much spread right there in the school system. As of Thursday morning, the health department confirmed about 40 norovirus cases. However, these are self-reported. So Garf says that number does not paint an accurate picture of the spread. She says it's likely much larger. The health department now has some evidence of community spread, meaning norovirus cases that are happening outside of the school system, too. So it seems like there is some spread um, through the community. Some people have mentioned that they've been ill that aren't inside of the school system, um, which is common because kids go home to their families and then families go out to work um, and things like that. Norovirus can spread by eating contaminated food or liquids, also touching contaminated surfaces and then touching your mouth, sharing utensils. Garf says community members should monitor themselves and their families for symptoms. Diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, stomach pain, fever. There's not a medication that can help with this. Um, There's not an antibiotic. Antibiotics help bacteria, but not viruses. So going to the doctor for a typical norovirus is not recommended as it could bog down the, the healthcare system, and we definitely don't want to run into that. But going to the doctor if, if a child becomes or if anybody becomes dehydrated from norovirus. So eating and drinking is very, very important even while you are feeling ill. The Southeast Utah Health Department is currently investigating this norovirus outbreak. They're asking anyone with symptoms to fill out a brief questionnaire to help them in that effort. 
You can find that in the show notes. Grand County Schools plan to reopen for in-person learning on Tuesday. For KZMU News, I'm Molly Marcello. Utah is putting together its first-ever statewide strategic plan for funding and sustaining outdoor recreation. But first, it's launching a series of tour stops around Utah to get local feedback. David Condos, with our partners at KUER, reports on what the plan aims to address. Utah is home to spectacular landscapes for outdoor recreation. But as word has gotten out, crowded hiking trails and packed parking lots have become common parts of the scenery. Wayne Fryman has seen these dynamics firsthand in Moab, where he's a recreation resource management professor with Utah State University. That popularity brings a lot of opportunity, but we've had rapid escalation of growth, so there's a lot of challenges with that. That's why the Utah Outdoor Adventure Commission is putting together the state's first strategic plan to steer state funding, and it wants local input. Carly Lange is the planning coordinator for the Utah Department of Outdoor Recreation. As Utah continues to grow, it's really imperative that we can help coordinate some strategic investment into maintaining and sustaining what we're so lucky to have here in Utah. The listening tour includes seven stops through May and June, starting in Richfield. The full strategic plan will be released in July. That's David Condos reporting with our partners at KUER. And now, the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. Last fall, a base jumper crashed against a cliff face in Moab, and while he was dangling precariously from the ground, a woman nearby intervened. The Grand County Sheriff's Office honored her quick-thinking response with an award this week. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent discusses the story with Molly Marcello. Back in November, a base jumper on Cane Creek Boulevard had a malfunction and actually slammed into a cliff 80 feet above the road um, and was saved uh, through the heroic actions of River Berry, who was a a climber who just happened to be nearby. Okay, so like you said, a base jumper slammed into a cliff. Now, what unfolded? How did River even get to this, this base jumper? Interestingly, River was actually gearing up for a bike ride at a nearby trailhead, presumably the back trailhead when one of the base jumpers friends ran over and started asking if anybody had climbing gear and River being um, a very avid climber herself said she had two harnesses and a rope and two racks which is to say like two sets of anchors for every size crack and started working with this base jumpers friend they ran over to the cliff below where this, this guy was and started gearing up and she actually ended up climbing 80 feet in a crack that had never been climbed before presumably to reach this man wow truly heroic there is a big photo of this rescue in progress on the front page of the times independent it's it's quite dramatic it's astounding and just hearing her story and just how harrowing it was at the time i mean she describes getting near this man and he was just begging for her help you know please get this weight off my leg please 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 because he was just in so much pain Mm. but she had to slow herself down and set a bunch of different anchors and then eventually kind of clip this guy into her protection and cut through all the ropes attaching him to his his base jumping parachute um, before they lowered him to the ground Mm. so it required not only climbing skills but serious um, you know kind of wilderness first aid Mm -hmm. first response skills and a very level head which she thankfully had. Now we're talking about it and it's 
it's uh, on the front page of the Times Independent this week because um, River was honored with an award. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, on Monday, she was honored uh, with the life-saving award from the Grand County Sheriff's Office, and members of Search and Rescue were also there to congratulate her. So she she came back to Moab. Sheriff Wiggins did say that he told her uh, privately that Search and Rescue was hiring if she was interested. <laughs> um, but she has quite a life. She works as a therapist up in Salt Lake, and she's also quite an active athlete, uh, doing various kinds of climbing and mountain biking and slipboarding. Amazing. Anything else to say about this um, this piece in the TI? You know, yeah, interestingly, Doug asked her at the end of the interview if she felt like a hero, if she felt like that label applied to her after this. And she she said, you know, it's really hard to, to feel that way because when she was in the moment, she just did. So she said, if anything, she feels like her actions are a testament to the human capacity to do good and to do incredible things in, in very stressful circumstances. Oh, wow. Well, there's a lot more in the Times Independent. Where do you want to go next, Sophia? Some public lands news. The superintendent um, of the Southeast Utah Group of the National Park Service is retiring at the end of June. A retirement for Patty Trapp. And uh, you sat down with her. So what did you all talk about? Oh, a whole bunch of things. Um, she's been with the National Park Service actually for 35 years. So we talked a little bit about her trajectory Mm -hmm. and the moment she fell in love with the National Parks at at Mount Rainier in Washington State and, you know, how she came to the Four Corners region years ago and always wanted to come back. Um, We also spoke about more recent things. She's been with the Southeast Utah Group, which includes Arches and Canyonlands, as well as Hovenweepa Natural Bridges. for about three years. So she came on in summer 2020, mm-hmm. mid-COVID pandemic. Um, the park was dealing with a lot of congestion and also a woman had been killed at the entrance just a, a month or two yeah. before um, Patty Trapp came on. So it was certainly a stressful time. And we chatted a little bit too about the challenges and, and the excitements about her job here for the last couple of years. Okay, so you talked about, you know, when she first came on and some some stressful moments there. Um, she also, of course, oversaw this pilot timed entry program. Did you mm-hmm. all ch- talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I asked her how she thinks it went, if she thinks they would have done anything differently if they could go back. And she said she doesn't really think so. She's really proud of the community outreach that they did. She said that's the number one concern um, with the, you know, rollout of the two-year pilot. And she says they're committed to continuing to listen to the community as, you know, the National Park Service will be deciding uh, this upcoming winter whether to kind of try to enshrine uh, timed entry for Mm -hmm. forever in the park management, which would require a long environmental analysis Mm -hmm. process, or to dispense with it at the the close of the pilot. Okay. You reported in this piece that Patty is staying in Moab. Is that right? Absolutely. She loves it here. She said she always wanted to retire here. So she'll be doing some traveling. Uh, Her husband, Paul, is a cartoonist. So I think she said they're going to Comic-Con in San Diego, um, but they're certainly planning on, on staying in the community. Okay, and I know this article is all about Patty Trap, but any hint as to, you know, what's going to happen for the process of naming a new superintendent of the Southeast Utah Group? Yeah, she said, you know, they certainly haven't hired a new one yet, and it's likely we're going to have an acting superintendent mm-hmm. for a little while. I mean, it's the federal government. Things do move a little slower over there. Um, so no news yet, I think, on leadership, but I would assume they'll have an acting superintendent, perhaps chosen internally, someone who's already with the Southeast Utah Group. That would mm-hmm. be my guess. Okay. Well, thank you, Sophia, for going through that coverage. And there's another article we're hoping to highlight in the Times Independent. This is about um, an upcoming public hearing on a proposed density bonus. Yes, uh, there will be a public hearing this Monday at the Grand County Planning Commission's meeting for 30 p.m. on a proposed new density bonus. Um, It's kind of known as the MFR 45. MFR stands for multifamily residential. Um, And it's 
kind of complicated because this density bonus has been developed as part of the huge future land use plan process, which has been going on for months and has held multiple public workshops. But this specific density bonus is kind of preempting the rollout of that whole plan because there is a huge affordable housing tax credit program whose application um, period ends in September. So Elisa Martin, I spoke mm -hmm. with her. She's the head of planning and zoning at the county. She said they really want to get this rolled out ahead of the plan if possible to allow developers to apply for that tax credit sooner mm -hmm. rather than later to get affordable housing on okay. the ground in the county. So they want to roll this out first, if possible, and tell us what it does. How would it work? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, first of all, the density bonus has to be created through a legislative process, which means two public hearings and approval from the Grand mm -hmm. County Commission. And then anyone wanting to use the bonus would have to go through that same process again, you know, with a specific parcel. Um, 100% of the housing created would have to be for low or very low income mm -hmm. households. And it would allow them to build up to 45 units per acre, which I should note would be the highest density allowed in history in unincorporated Grand County. Mm -hmm. They would also get some relaxations on building heights, so they'd get to be a little taller and have kind of lower parking ratios, so fewer parking spaces required for units, which also mm -hmm. kind of helps them stick in more units. Um, right now, there's no kind of one map showing where these developments could go, but Martin said that it would likely be a very small number of, of parcels, generally along Highway mm -hmm. 191, near Moab City limits, and likely on the western side of Highway 191, because she was saying she doesn't want, you know, these presumably kind of larger projects to obscure views or ridgelines. So she said the uh, aim is to tuck these kind of into the hillside on the western side of the highway. Again, as you explained, these are density bonuses to um, incentivize low or very low income household units. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And as you explained, this is a public process. It's a legislative process. The first public hearing is this Monday. So if people want to learn about it, they can, you know, attend that or read more about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's uh, been discussed at, it was discussed at the Grand County Commission meeting a little bit on, on Tuesday. So you can mm -hmm. check that out on YouTube and discussed at the Planning Commission meeting a week prior also on YouTube okay. um, to learn to learn more. Now moving on, there's one more piece in the Times Independent that we're hoping to get to. Uh, where do you want to take us next? Let's talk about a solar eclipse. Okay. It's coming near Moab in October. The headline is the ring of fire comes to Canyon country. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Right. Okay. Tell us about it. Absolutely. There will be a, a solar eclipse coming through southeastern Utah in October. Uh, it's an annular solar eclipse, which means that the moon isn't quite big enough to obscure the entire sun. So there will still be a ring of sunlight around the moon, which is why it's called Ring of Fire. Very cool. And I said Canyon Country because it's not actually fully going to hit Moab. But if you go like 30 minutes south, you'll see it. So it's very close to Moab. So I've heard that this is going to be a boon, perhaps, for like bluff oh absolutely yeah. um like, san juan county yeah mm -hmm. um you know bryce and capitol reef and a lot of Canyonlands are within the full path of annularity so mm -hmm. they're expected to see i assume tons of visitation around this time right so i see that you talked to um moab astronomy tours can you tell us about that yeah i spoke with uh, chris white who is the founder and is also actually the eclipse coordinator with earth to sky which is an interagency partnership that aims to share uh nasa data and resources with various public land agencies 
agency. So actually, one of White's roles is interpreting these wow. this upcoming eclipse, which is really cool. Okay. Um, you know, she told me that any eclipse is an absolutely amazing one. She definitely encouraged folks to go see this and emphasized that the annular eclipse to view it, you're going to need eye protection beyond regular sunglasses. So mm-hmm. buy those like solar filtered eclipse viewing glasses, get a filter for your camera because it will screw up your camera if you try to point it right at the sun, take mm-hmm. a photo mm-hmm. um, and kind of sit back and relax at that point. It's going to be passing through our area around 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, October 14th. All right. So you wanted to give, you know, your readers a kind of heads up, months long heads up about this event. Um, Tell us why. Uh, basically, so folks can get their glasses, I think, and prepare. <laughs> yeah. Also, it is going to be the weekend of the Utah school break. So I imagine that a lot of families in this uh, in Moab also might be leaving Moab. So right. maybe go somewhere else where the, you can view the eclipse right. recommendation. And we are probably going to see a pretty big bump in visitation. Um, I spoke with someone at the Office of Tourism, the Utah Office of Tourism, and at Utah State Parks. And you know, they couldn't say definitively whether or not we were going to see much higher visitation. But anecdotally, uh, areas in eclipse viewing paths do see large bumps during these events. Okay. Prepare for that as well. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Why are ponderosa pine trees dying on Ray Mesa? Researchers are just beginning to explore potential answers. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News wrote about it for this week's edition and discusses the story with Molly Marcello. Ray Mesa is this spot of land managed by the Bureau of Land Management's um, Moab Field Office District. And it's really unique to the district because this is home to some of the only old-growth ponderosa pine trees within the Bureau of Land Management's um, overview. Because usually ponderosa pines are alpine trees, Mm -hmm. and so they grow higher up, and usually they're within Forest Service land. Um, But this little spot of them is within BLM land. So these old-growth trees are a huge rarity. Um, They're class is considered to be endangered because at the turn of the last century logging really decimated old trees in the west and Mm so the fact that we have these really old trees is really special um the trees obviously provide ecological benefits like habitat and they act as microclimate adjusters providing shade and things like that and then also you know from the human standpoint old growth forests are just this very ancient view into the past Mm -hmm. and so people really like them but the old growth ponderosas at Ray Mesa are dying. And um, there's this new research team led by Larissa Yocom, who is a professor in the Wildland Resources Department at USU, and also um, Johnny Jew, who is a land law examiner with the BLM's Moab Field Office. And they're trying to figure out why these trees are dying. So have they just pretty much started this research? Yeah, the research yeah. is very new. And also the tree mortality is very new. And so they have a couple of hypotheses. Um, Larissa Yocum, her research concerns um, wildfires. And so they're looking into kind of like the history of wildfires in this area. And so um, people around here know Ray Mesa because we have prescribed burns there. But these prescribed burns are very new because if we go way, way back, In this area, indigenous people of the Mm -hmm. area used to use kind of prescribed burns or something similar to it because areas that need wildfire really benefit from that. Um, Wildfires can clear out the understory Mm -hmm. and get rid of these 
plants that kind of choke out the native plants like ponderosas and also ponderosa pines are fire adapted species so they're meant to have these wildfires um, that set their habitat alight and so their young trees Mm -hmm. can grow and it just kind of clears everything out so indigenous populations knew this and they would light these small controlled fires to maintain this clear understory Um, But in the early 1900s, U.S. federal policy was to suppress fire, Mm -hmm. and that followed a couple of really devastating wildfires. Um, And wildfires are obviously very terrifying, and so, but, you know, federal policy didn't really take into account this need for wildfire Mm -hmm. and the need to clear out the understory. So then there was this period of fire suppression in this area, and the effects of that meant that at Ray Mesa, this once thriving ponderosa forest was suddenly really crowded by non-fire adapted species like pinyon and juniper pines mm-hmm. that just created this huge bulk of an understory. And so then during a wildfire, those species would act as ladder fuels, which means they would pick up a grass fire and take them up into the next level and mm-hmm. allow these fires to burn um, taller and hotter, you know, it yeah. makes these wildfires way more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So now, um, fast forwarding again, in the past couple of decades, land management agencies have learned the benefits of fire cycles, and they utilize prescribed burns in certain areas like Ray Mesa. But prescribed burns in Ray Mesa have only been kind of relatively new. And so from the tree's perspective, with these old growth mm-hmm. trees, it's like, we have this regular fire fire cycle, the natural cycle, and this huge period of suppression, and now fires again. Mm. And so the team is looking into, you know, is this putting stress on the trees? Is the controlled fire too infrequent or too frequent? Kind of like, you know, could fire be one of the reasons that mm-hmm. the trees are dying? This is fascinating. Yeah. Um, and this is coming at a time, as you explained, where, you know, management practices around forests is changing, mm-hmm. too. Now, you spent some time with these researchers. Is this going to be like a seasonal project? Like, are they going to continue this year year after year? Yeah. So the research right now is funded through some funding with the um, Kenyulands Natural History Association. But this is something that the BLM is constantly looking into Mm -hmm. is how do we manage, you know, how does science influence the way that land management practices happen? And so... um, Johnny Jew said, you know, in the past, the BLM and other land management agencies have used science, you know, the, to the best of their knowledge to mm-hmm. do these land management practices, but it's constantly changing. So I do think this is going to be a growing project. Um, mm-hmm. And he also mentioned that this research might be applicable to um, like ponderosa pines across the U.S. because mm. this population is kind of in the margins. So they're not super high mm-hmm. alpine. Um, and they're also, you know, kind of low enough to still be in BLM land. And so they're living in this hotter and drier climate than usual ponderosas mm. do. And so with climate change, as climates everywhere get hotter and drier, this population specifically could be kind of this little peek into the future of what mm. could happen to these trees. So fire is one of the hypotheses, but then also climate change right. is a hypothesis <laughs> right. for why the trees could be dying. You know, we have this mega drought in the West So it could be drought that's Mm -hmm. influencing the trees. It could also be pests like the western pine beetle that could be taking more of a foothold Mm -hmm. in this area and affecting the trees. Um, And so, yeah, the research that they're doing here can both benefit the trees here, but also benefit trees across the whole world. Well, that's fascinating. And this research, you know, it sounds like it takes time. (laughs) 
ecological time Definitely. to figure out, you know, trends and what's patterns and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, um, the team is just getting started. So they're going to start by taking tree cores, mm. which will allow them to get an idea of how old the trees are and what their growth pattern has been. So tree rings can tip researchers off to like wet years, which are fatter mm-hmm. rings and dry years, which are skinnier rings. And also trees carry um, fire scars. Mm. And so mm-hmm. they'll be able to see kind of what the fire cycle has been in the past. Amazing. Anything else to say about this this piece in the modes and news? I don't think so, but we will definitely be following up with them to see how this research develops. Moving on, um, there's another story that um, we'd like to highlight in the Moabs and News. This one took you to Castle Valley. Yeah, so Castle Valley has a library. I don't think a lot of people know about it, but it's a branch of the Grand County Public Library. So they have the Moab one and then the Castle Valley Library. And through the pandemic, the Castle Valley Library in particular has been very quiet. And, you know, it used to be this really big community center. Like Hmm. um, people told me that, you know, sometimes people in the community would even just go bring a cup of coffee and sit in the library and wait for people to come by so they could chat. Um, But over the pandemic, this really quieted everything down. And so now the library has kind of this year been starting up some of their events again. And one of those is the Friday Ping Pong Club. I'm so excited that you wrote about this because when I was doing a story about the library, um, the MOAM branch of the library, I was looking at their events calendar and noticed that the Castle Valley branch has ping pong every week. I'm yes. like, what is going on out there? That's also where I saw this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I went um, on a Friday in April. The library is this one room um, in the town building. It shares space with the town building. Okay. Um, and so the ping pong table, when it's set up, takes up most of the space in the library, but it leaves enough room for four players to play a game of doubles. <laughs> so when I was there, um, there were four people, Ruth Brown, Betty Ann Curtis, Barbara McGann, Dennis Brown. And then they also mentioned that there are two other regulars, Colleen Thompson and Diane Ackerman. Mm. And a lot of these people overlap as members of the Friday Morning Book Club. Um, and so really all they do is just play games and they never keep score it's a really good way to build community and also members said um it's a great way to get their steps in like (laughs) betty ann wears a fitbit and she said she hits her daily step goal in in only an hour of gameplay so they're they recognize that they're not very good at ping pong and somehow they don't get better week after week (laughs) they just kind of do rallies for as long as they can and you know when a rally goes back and forth for more than 10 or so returns they're all getting very excited this has kind of been this community event um over the winter since february they've been doing okay ping pong club Mm -hmm. um and now as the weather gets warmer they're talking about transitioning to pickleball this is another ball paddle sport Mm -hmm. did you find out you know how this ping pong club came to be like what's up with the table yeah you know it's funny because nobody really remembers um they all slightly remember city council Uh buying a ping pong table for the library okay but they've never really i asked if they were gonna buy another table Mm -hmm. or try to do something Mm -hmm. bigger like a tournament or something they were like no it just showed up table we have a table (laughs) we have our table we have our Uh friday afternoon so it's really just this very sweet lovely event but they did say when they're transitioning to pickleball they are gonna keep score 
Okay. So that'll be new. So this will be new. <laughs> so ping pong is kind of like a casual, an excuse to meet up maybe yes. at the library. But mm. pickleball seems like it's going to be a whole other thing. Right. Pickleball, <laughs> they're getting serious. Okay. <laughs> they're very excited. Anything else to say about ping pong club at the Castle Valley Library? Um, if you're interested in these events, you can find um, the event calendar at the library's website, which is off the Grand County, Utah website. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.